Hello, Deadly Deeders, and welcome, true crime enthusiasts, to our first ever series edition of the Deadly Deeds True Crime Podcast. I am your host, Chris King, and today we embark on a series journey into the sinister realms of crime. This is the chilling narrative of one of the most infamous cases in Alaskan history. Join us through this series as we navigate through the icy landscapes, tracing the footsteps of a cunning killer who terrorized the region for over a decade. Through interviews, archival footage, and in-depth analysis, we'll piece together the puzzle of Robert Hansen's life, his heinous acts, and the relentless pursuit of justice for the victims in this case. Each episode in this series takes you deeper into the chilling narrative of a man who turned the Alaskan wilderness into his hunting grounds. Stay with us as we unravel the mysteries and explore the profound impact of this dark chapter in true crime history. So without further delay, fasten your seatbelts as we seek to understand this notorious case. This is the Daily Deeds podcast, and this true crime podcast series is titled Hunting the Butcher Baker, Unraveling Alaska's Dark Secret. And this episode of this series is titled The Frozen Frontier and the Elusive Robert Hansen. As we begin to dive into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to paint a picture of Alaska and the vast Alaskan wilderness in an effort to fully immerse you, my listeners, into the backdrop of one of the most heinous crimes committed in Alaskan history. In the vast expanse of Alaska's frozen frontier, where the beauty of nature hides in the shadows of darkness, a series of heinous crimes unfolded, leaving a community shattered and a nation in shock. In the first episode of this series titled The Frozen Frontier and the Elusive Robert Hansen, we embark on a journey to uncover the sinister secrets that lurked beneath the surface of the last frontier. The desolate brace of Alaska, a land where beauty and brutality collide in the harshest of harmonies. As we embark on our journey into the heart of the darkness, we find ourselves enveloped by a wilderness that whispers untold secrets and echoes the chilling tales of those who fell victim to its icy grasp. Imagine, if you will, a landscape where towering mountains pierce the heavens their jagged peaks reaching for infinite sky, a realm where glaciers carve their way through valleys, leaving behind a frozen testament to the relentless passage of time. It's a place where northern lights dance in the heavens, casting a glow upon the silent, snow-covered spaces below. Yet beneath this picturesque facade lies the harsh reality, a paradoxical theater of both beauty and brutality. The last frontier, a vast expanse, conceals its secrets with an icy embrace, It's against this backdrop, amidst the haunting serenity of nature's grandeur, that a series of gruesome crimes unfold. Our story begins in the shadows of these towering mountains and dense forests, where the bitter cold bites at the very soul. Here, in this stark and unforgiving frontier, where survival is a constant battle against the elements, a predator lurked, preying on the vulnerable with fierceness that matched the harshness of this land. The victims, often forgotten souls seeking refuge in the anonymity of the night were drawn into a malevolent game orchestrated by a man who would later become infamous as the butcher baker the wilderness seemingly untouched by sins of humanity became the stage for a dark drama where life and death played out in the shadows of the towering spruce and fir trees robert christian bose hansen born on february 15 1939 popularly known as the Butcher Baker, was an American serial killer active in Anchorage, Alaska between 1972 and 1983. Hansen abducted, raped, and murdered at least 17 women, 
many of whom he hunted in the wilderness with a Ruger Mini-14 and a hunting knife. Hansen was captured in 1983 and sentenced to 461 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He died in 2014 of natural causes at the age of 75 and while still incarcerated. Robert Hansen was born in Esterville, Iowa, the eldest of two children to an American mother, Edna Margaret Hansen, and a Danish father, local baker, Christian Hansen. Robert was employed by his father's bakery. The family moved to Richmond, California in 1942, but returned to Iowa in 1949 and settled in Pocahontas. In his youth, Robert was painfully shy, had a stutter, and suffered from severe acne that left him permanently scarred, which didn't help him with the girls at school at all, and he hated them for their rejection. Throughout childhood and adolescence, Hansen was described as a quiet loner who had a difficult relationship with his domineering father. Hansen started to practice both hunting and archery and often found refuge in these pastimes. In 1957, and at the age of 18, Hansen enlisted in the United States Army Reserve and attended basic training at Fort Dix in New Jersey. Hansen only served for one year before discharging. During his one year of service, Hansen had his first sexual encounter with a prostitute in a local hotel and while stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky, engaged in more frequent encounters with prostitutes. He later worked as an assistant drill instructor at a junior police academy in Pocahontas, Iowa. There, he began a relationship with a younger woman who he married in the summer of 1960 while also becoming a volunteer firefighter. In the winter of 1960, and at the age of 21, Hansen was arrested for burning down the bus garage of a school in Pocahontas. Hansen was sentenced to three years at Anamosa State Penitentiary, but only served 20 months of his sentence. Hansen was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenic episodes during his incarceration. The psychiatrist that made the diagnosis noted that Hansen had a, quote, infantile personality and was obsessed with getting back at people he felt had wronged him in some way. In the years after his release, he went back to prison a few times for theft, but did not stay very long. In 1963, Hansen met his second wife, Darla, who taught special education classes in a local school. The two moved to Anchorage, Alaska in 1967 and had two children together living a seemingly normal life. By this time, Hansen was an avid hunter and spent a lot of his time in the Alaskan wilderness when he wasn't working at his bakery or spending time with his family. But despite Hansen's new start, he continued to get into trouble with the law. And in December of 1971, he was arrested again for the rape of a sex worker and the abduction and attempted rape of a housewife, in which Hansen agreed to plead guilty to assault with a deadly weapon involving the attempted rape of the housewife, but only if the attempted rape of the sex worker was dropped. Hansen's request for this plea deal was agreed upon, and he served six months of a five-year sentence. Hansen was released in 1972 into a halfway house. Four years later, in 1976, Hansen was arrested again for stealing a chainsaw from a local Fred Meyer store in Anchorage. At his trial, he pled guilty to the theft and was sentenced to five years in prison, where he was required to receive psychiatric treatment for his bipolar disorder. The Alaska Supreme Court reduced his sentence, and he was released with time served due to the treatment he received for his bipolar disorder. As we see more and more in American society, there's a growing recognition of the intersection between mental health and the criminal justice system. Public opinion on individuals with mental illness who commit serious crimes can vary widely. Some advocate for more compassionate and rehabilitative approach emphasizing mental health treatment over punitive measures. Others associate mental illness with violence. As with any sensitive topic, 
the diversity of opinions within society on mental health and the justice system are heavily scrutinized. Some jurisdictions have implemented mental health courts or diversion programs that aim to provide treatment instead of incarceration for individuals with mental health issues. However, the overall system is still evolving and in its response to mental health concerns within the context of reduced prison sentences and treatment. This type of leniency is heavily scrutinized by society as a whole, with serious questions about its efficacy. Stay tuned as we discuss how authorities were led to suspect Robert Hansen's involvement in this case. From the early 1970s, women began going missing and bodies started showing up around the Anchorage area. The first signs that led authorities to suspect Hansen's involvement in this series of abductions and murders were initially tied to a survivor named Cindy Paulson. After her escape from Robert's clutches on June 13, 1983, Cindy provided law enforcement with a disturbing account of her ordeal. It was believed that Hansen began killing women as early as 1972 with Cindy Paulson thought to be his last known victim. On June 13, 1983, Cindy Paulson related that a man offered her $200 to perform oral sex. When Cindy got into his car, which was an unknown sedan, he pulled out a gun and drove her to his home in Muldoon. There he held her captive and proceeded to rape and torture her. Cindy later told police that Hanson chained her by the neck to a post in his basement. He took a nap on a couch nearby. When he awoke, he put her in his car and took her to the Merrill Field Airport, where he told her that he intended to take her to his cabin, which was later found to be a shack on the Nick River area of the Matanuska Sestina Valley, which was accessible only by boat or bush plane. Cindy, crouched in the back seat of the car with her wrist cuffed in front of her body, saw a chance to escape when this man was busy loading the cockpit of his airplane, which was later identified as a Piper PA-18 Super Cub. While his back was turned, Cindy crawled out the back seat, opened the driver's side door, and ran toward nearby 6th Avenue. Cindy later told police that she had left her blue sneakers on the passenger side floor of the sedan's back seat as evidence she had been in his car. Seeing this, he panicked and chased her, but Cindy was able to reach 6th Avenue and managed to flag down a passing truck. The driver, Robert Yount, alarmed by Cindy's disheveled appearance, stopped and picked her up. Yount drove her to the Mush Inn where Cindy jumped out of the back of the truck and ran inside. While Cindy pleaded with the clerk to phone her boyfriend at the Big Timber Motel, Yount continued on to work, where he later called police to report the incident. When Anchorage police arrived at the Mush Inn, they were told that Cindy had taken a cab to the Big Timber Motel. When Anchorage officers arrived at the Big Timber Motel, they found Cindy in room 110, still handcuffed and alone. Officers described Cindy as cold, hysterically shaking, and trying to remove the handcuffs, which were now significantly digging into her wrists. Cindy was taken to Anchorage Police Headquarters, where she described the perpetrator, his sedan, his airplane, his Muldoon home, and her account of events with vivid detail. Detective Glenn Floth of the Alaska State Troopers had been part of the team investigating the discovery of several bodies in and around Anchorage, Seward, and the Matanuska Sestina Valley area. First bodies were found by construction workers near Ekletna Road. The body, dubbed Ekletna Annie by investigators, was not yet identified. Later that year, another body was discovered in a gravel pit near Seward. 
and other remains were discovered in a shallow grave near the Nick River. Floth believed that all three women had been murdered by the same perpetrator. Shortly after, Floth contacted FBI Special Agent John Douglas and requested help with an offender profile based on three recovered bodies. Douglas thought that the killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, have a history of being rejected by women, and would be compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as victim's jewelry. He also suggested that the assailant might stutter. Using this profile, Floth investigated possible suspects until he reached Hansen, who fit the profile and owned a plane. After isolating Robert Hansen as a possible suspect, he was questioned by Anchorage police. During questioning, Robert denied Cindy's accusations, stating that she was trying to cause trouble for him because he wouldn't pay her extortion demands. Although he had several prior run-ins with the law, Robert's meek demeanor and humble occupation as a baker, along with an alibi from his friend John Henning, kept him from being considered as a primary suspect at this time. Now, as I began to look at all the information gathered by investigators up to this point in time, and after talking with Cindy about the events surrounding her abduction on June 13, 1983, I was able to determine the following timeline in relation to the disappearances reported in Seward and Anchorage areas. On December 22, 1971, Celia Beth Van Zanatten, an 18-year-old female, disappeared from near the Buy Low supermarket area in Anchorage. On July 7, 1983, Megan Emmerich, a 17-year-old female, disappeared from the Anchorage area. On July 5, 1975, Mary Thill, a 22-year-old female, disappeared from Seward. On May 19, 1980, Joanne Messina, a 24-year-old topless dancer, went missing from Seward. On June 28, 1980, Roxanne Esland, a 24-year-old female went missing from Anchorage. She has never been heard from or seen since. On December 6, 1980, Lisa Futrell, a 41-year-old female, went missing from Anchorage. On July 10, 1981, Malai Larson, a 28-year-old female dancer, went missing from Anchorage. On November 17, 1981, Sherry Morrow, a 23-year-old topless dancer, also went missing from Anchorage. On December 2, 1981, Andrea Mona Atiri, also known as Fish, a 24-year-old female, went missing from Anchorage. On May 26, 1982, Sue Luna, a 23-year-old exotic dancer, went missing from Anchorage. On August 7, 1982, Tamra Pedersen, or Tammy, a 20-year-old dancer, also went missing from Anchorage. Last seen in February of 1983, Angela Lynn Fettern, a 24-year-old female, went missing from Anchorage, but was not reported missing until May. Last seen in March of 1983, Delyn Renee Frey, or Sugar, a 22-year-old female, went missing from Anchorage, but was not immediately reported missing. On March 25, 1983, Teresa Watson, a 22-year-old dancer, went missing from Anchorage. On April 25, 1983, Paula Goulding, a 30-year-old dancer, went missing from Anchorage. Wow, just wow. This is quite the list of disappearances in the Seward and Anchorage areas of Alaska. And as I looked at the discovery of the bodies being found and the identification of the victims, I found a chilling sequence of events revealing the grim reality of crimes committed against these women. And up until talking with Cindy Paulson on June 13, 1983, investigators had no true leads or any breaks in this case. Next, stay tuned as I discuss each victim in detail and the daunting challenges investigators faced.
Robert Hansen is known to have raped and assaulted over 30 Alaskan women and to have murdered at least 17 of those women, with ages ranging from 16 to 41. Although based on evidence, law enforcement suspect that Hansen killed at least 21 female victims. Hansen was only formally charged with the four murders of Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, Eklutna Annie, and Paula Goulding. He was also charged with the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson. On July 8, 1980, victim number one was located. Joanne Messina, a 24-year-old local topless dancer, went out to dinner with Hansen on May 19, 1980, while she was working in Seward, Alaska. Before she offered him sex in exchange for cash, Hansen claimed that everything was going smoothly. Hansen refused to pay and refused to release her, so he drove her and her dog to a distant place by the Snow River. He hit her with a 22 caliber revolver before shooting her twice and the dog once. He brought Joanne's body to a grave pit nearby and dumped gravel over her body. The dog and Joanne's belongings were thrown into the woods and the gun was thrown into the Snow River. On July 8, 1980, her severely decomposed body was found after it had been eviscerated by local wildlife. On July 21, 1980, victim number two was located. The unidentified victim, later known as Ekletna Annie, was found by construction workers buried next to a power line in a wooded area, just one mile south of South Ekletna Lake Road in Ekletna, Anchorage, Alaska. Her body, exposed to the harsh elements already largely consumed by wildlife, served as a silent testament to the brutality that had transpired. The remote location, far from the prying eyes of civilization, highlighted the calculated choices made by the killer to conceal his crimes. Investigators affectionately named her Ekletna Annie as they were unable to identify her by her remains. Hansen later admitted to stabbing her in the back after she made an effort to flee from his car. She was either a topless dancer or a prostitute, according to Hansen, who also claimed that she was his first murder victim. Despite his claim that Ekletna Annie might have come from Kodiak, Alaska, Troopers think she might have arrived in Alaska via California. On October 22, 2021, and 37 years after the discovery of her body, Eglund Annie was finally identified as Robin Pelkey by use of genealogical records. Robin had been born in 1963 in Colorado. Records indicated that she had been living in the Anchorage area in the early 1980s when Robert Hansen was active. Robin would have been 19 years old at the time of her murder, and no record was ever found reporting her missing. The discovery of Eklutna Annie was a sombering revelation, signaling the beginning of a series of horrifying findings that would follow in the years to come. Each subsequent discovery added layers to this investigation, exposing the extent of Hansen's sinister activities and the tragedy that had befallen multiple victims. On September 12, 1982, Victim number three was located. Sherry Morrow, a 23-year-old topless dancer, told friends she was meeting a photographer who had promised her $300 for nude images on November 17, 1981. She was never seen again. A shallow grave was discovered by hunters on the banks of the Nick River, which borders Anchorage. Morrow, who was reported missing a year earlier, was identified from her remains. She had received three gunshot wounds to the back, and cartridges discovered close to the body revealed that a 223 caliber Ruger Mini-14 hunting rifle had been used to deliver the shots. An odd feature was that although the body was found fully clothed, there were no bullet holes in the clothing, suggesting that Sherry had been naked when shot and had been redressed after death before being buried. On September 2, 1983, 
Victim number four was located. Paula Goulding, 30 years old, was a dancer in Anchorage. On April 25, 1983, Hansen offered her money before kidnapping her. He drove her to his aircraft, shackled her, and demanded she exit the aircraft under the threat of being shot. Once they reached a remote spot, she fought with him and attempted to get away, according to Hansen. She fled and he fired a 223 rifle at her, killing her. She was discovered on the Nick River, buried in a shallow grave. She had been wounded in the back, but because her clothing was undamaged, it was possible she was shot while still naked and then clothed after being buried. Although only charged with four murders, it's important to remember that many young women went missing in Alaska during Hansen's killing spree. Investigators suspect Hansen to be responsible for at least 21 murders and the countless disappearances in the area during this time frame, all of which resemble the same modus operandi, or MO. It's important to note that investigators assigned to the Butcher Baker case had several daunting challenges. Challenge number one, geographic extremes. The crimes occurred in the vast and unforgiving Alaskan wilderness, presenting investigators with the challenge of accessing and thoroughly searching remote crime scenes. The extreme weather conditions and difficult terrain made their efforts and collection of evidence near impossible. Number two, isolated crime scenes. Hansen often chose secluded locations for his crimes, minimizing the chances of witnesses. This isolation made it difficult for investigators to gather information and evidence, hampering their ability to establish patterns or connections early in this investigation. Number three, transient victim population. Many victims were transient individuals, including sex workers and dancers. Tracking their movements and establishing a common thread among them proved challenging due to their lifestyles. Number four, a lack of advanced forensic technologies for the time. In the early 1980s, forensic technology was not as advanced as it is today. Limited DNA analysis capabilities and other forensic tools hindered investigators' ability to link evidence definitively to any one suspect. Number five, crafty modus operandi, or MO. Hansen's meticulous planning and execution of each crime, including the use of his private plane for transport, demonstrated a crafty modus operandi, or MO. This level of sophistication made it challenging for investigators to anticipate his actions or identify a clear pattern. Number six, unknown motives. The seemingly random selection of his victims and the brutality of the acts posed a challenge in establishing a coherent motive, complicating the profiling and investigative processes. Number seven, information sharing. Communication and information sharing among law enforcement agencies were not as streamlined as they are today. This hindered collaborative efforts, making it difficult to connect the dots and recognize the larger pattern of a serial offender operating in the region. And lastly, number eight, no eyewitnesses to any of these crimes. The secluded nature of the crimes meant that there were rarely any eyewitnesses. Without individuals who had seen crimes occur, investigators had to rely heavily on forensic evidence and any circumstantial information available. Despite these challenges, investigators persevered, gradually overcoming obstacles through advancements in forensic science, improved collaboration, and their unwavering dedication to solving the Butcher Baker case. This concludes episode number one in this true crime series titled Hunting the Butcher Baker, Unraveling Alaska's Dark Secret. 
Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us today. Your commitment to understanding and reflecting on such sensitive topics is vital in fostering awareness and preventing similar tragedies. Let's continue these conversations, spread awareness, and work together to create a safer, more compassionate world for everyone. Until next time, take care and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us on this gripping journey through the dark and haunting chapters of the Butcher Baker case. We hope this podcast has provided insight into the complexities of crime, the resilience of communities, and lessons learned from one of the most heinous criminals in Alaskan history. Join us and stay tuned for the series episode number two titled Chasing Shadows, which will be available in two weeks and will continue to delve into the Butcher Baker case. This podcast was researched, edited, and hosted by Chris King. Music and sound design provided by Spotify for podcasters. And the cover art was done by Chris King. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Your support keeps us motivated to delve into more intriguing true crime stories. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, stay vigilant, stay curious. For resources about this episode, please visit our website at deadlydeedspodcast.godaddysites.com or click on the direct link to this website on our Apple Podcast show page. You've just listened to the Deadly Deeds True Kind podcast, where every whisper holds a mystery and every story chills to the bone. From unsolved murders to baffling disappearances, we dissect the enigmas that keep us awake at night. Subscribe now and join us as we delve into the most perplexing and bone-chilling true crime stories.